Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're taking this time, and I think this most likely, we're just going to spend our, this series, this little short series, in Ephesians chapter 1, because it's unlike really any other chapter in the Bible. Colossians is a, is a sister letter to the Ephesians. It was written to a church very much in the same area, and it has a lot of the same themes. It's just simpler and it's smaller, but Ephesians is so rich, it really contains the gospel, God's side and then our side. And as I explained to you in the beginning, when we began to look at this, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has a pattern in which he approaches these churches in a number of these letters. It's true in Ephesians, it's true in Colossians, it's true in Galatians, uh, and it's true in, in several others, Romans. And where Paul is basically calling those churches up to a standard, but he doesn't start by correcting them, and he doesn't start by telling them, look, this is what you need to do. He starts by reminding them who they are. And that's so, so insightful to me in terms of what God's character is like. God is a father. Amen? Amen. I'll talk to you over here. See, I, this allows me to move around. God is a father, right? Yes. He's a father. And so as a father, we're his children, and because he's a father, he will train us, he will discipline us, and he will correct us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that starting in verse 5. Because he's our father and loves us, he won't leave us where we are. He'll challenge us to grow. And the wonderful thing is, whereas your father or my father or you as a father and me as a father may not always know where that line is of where, what the child can do and what they can't do, so some of it was trial and error. With God, it's never trial and error. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not allow you to go through a test. He won't allow a test into your life that he has not already determined that you can handle. Now, not that you like. It doesn't say that you don't like. It doesn't say that you think you can handle, that God knows you can handle with his grace and help. Amen. And he's also determined and is faithful to not allow you to go through a test that he hasn't determined that you can get through and that you can overcome. He doesn't say he'll get you around the tests. It says he'll take you through the tests. I don't know why I'm going in this direction today, but this is where we're going for a few moments. But in meditating on this lately, and it's interesting because several places do you see this in, the exam- in Jesus' life and in Peter's life. Peter, Jesus said to Peter right near the end, right before Peter was going to deny him three times, he said, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat. And that's a sifting to separate out of Peter the chaff from the wheat, that which is true, that which is real, that which is true faith from that which is not. Because Peter was full of bravado. Peter was full of self-confidence. And anything that's self is chaff. Chaff is the part of the wheat you've got to get rid of because it is of no value. In fact, if you keep the chaff in the wheat, it will, it will ruin the bread. You've got to get the chaff out of them. We don't know about that because we go to Stop and Shop or Shaw's and we just buy the bread all made. But some of you are bakers and you know how to take the wheat and the meal. But, the, but to get the, the flour, they've got to take the wheat and they've got to grind it up. But if you don't get rid of the chaff, you won't get pure wheat. You won't get pure flour. And we talked last year a little bit of time where, where it says in Hebrews that there's going to come a day when there's going to be a great shaking the, the sky's going to shake, the earth's going to shake, 
the earth under your feet's going to shake. Not the old rock and roll song, but this, it's going to all shake. And whatever, can, and God's going to bring the shaking so that whatever cannot be, whatever is, remains is what's of God. And whatever goes is what wasn't of God in our lives. So that's a, it's a healthy process to go through. Just like this is a healthy process to go through. It's not easy. It's more work, right, Gary? It's a lot of work. Gary's in charge of the project as a project manager, doing an incredible job, but it's a lot of work. When I asked him to do it, I don't think he realized what was involved. I didn't realize what was involved. And God's grace is sufficient. And so, but, but, but what was I talking about before Gary interrupted me? <laughs> Shaking. Thank you. Thank you, Bethany. So we go, difficult things aren't necessarily bad. That went over big. Difficult things are not, in fact, they're often good. But there's even a more interesting example. Because isn't it, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has sought permission. That means he couldn't test Peter without God's permission. So God determined that Peter was able to handle it with God's grace. He determined that Peter would be able to go through it. And not only that, Jesus said, but I prayed for you. Isn't that nice to know? Oh, Jesus is praying. Yeah, but he's praying for you so that you can get through the trial. He's praying for you that you'll come through it and go out the other end. And not just go out the other end, but learn what you need to learn. Because if we don't learn it the first time through, guess what? We're going to have to go all the way back around and we're going to go through it again. See, God doesn't skip grades. He doesn't look at you and say, look, you're of the age where you ought to be in ninth grade, but you're still only in third so we're just going to give you some grace and move you ahead. No, if you haven't learned third grade's lesson, you're not going to fourth. Because there's too much at stake. But I prayed for you, Peter, so that after the trust has gone through, your faith will not fail. Now, when that happens, you go and encourage the others, implying that they were going to be tested. And they were. But not only that, one of the most telling things to me is in Luke chapter 4, right after Jesus has been filled with the Spirit. Jesus, God's Son, perfect, no sin, filled with the Spirit of God. The very first thing the Holy Spirit does is lead him into the wilderness to be what? Tested by the devil. Jesus had to be tested by going through challenges and difficulties. So if Jesus had to be, and Peter had to be, it's possible we need to go through some. So don't run away from them. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, I've learned to rejoice in tribulation, glory in tribulation, because I've understood that trouble, tribulation in my life produces something. If I don't bail out on it, if I bear through it, if I learn to trust God, see, Trials and tests will show you where your faith really is. It's one thing to come into church and shout and rejoice and sing with all the other saints. It's another thing at 2 o'clock in the morning. When the pain's there, when you come to the doctor and he says, we have no answer. We don't know what's wrong. Or worse, we know what's wrong, but we don't have an answer. Or you go to work and you get a pink slip. Or whatever it is, whatever it happens to be. Now you find out where your faith really is. Yes. Yes. 
And that's good. Because Peter thought his faith was way up here. I'll never deny you. I'll go, I'll go give my life up with you. That's where Peter thought his faith was. Jesus knew where his faith really was. And in about 12 hours, Peter found out where his faith really was. And the only one who was shocked when Peter denied him three times was Peter. Because Jesus knew where his faith was. And Jesus had to take Peter through that process because God can only work with you to mature you when you are willing to face where you really are. Because God is truth. And because God is truth, he can only deal with us in truth. And if we're not trying, willing to face the truth, then God, that's hiding in a shadow, and there is no shadow of turning in him. Because God is light. And in him there is no darkness, no shadow at all. James chapter 1, verse 17. No shadow at all. So in order for God to truly work in my life, I've got to be willing to stand before him the way first Adam and Eve stood before him, with naked and unashamed, just standing before, this is who I am. Expose me to who I am. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper more than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the difference between the thoughts and intents of the heart. God knows everything about you. We've got to be willing to stand before him and allow him to reveal to us, not because he's going to embarrass us, not because he's going to laugh at us so he can begin to work with us in truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the, then, the, then, the, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another. I don't know why I'm in this direction tonight, but this is, we're not in Ephesians yet, but this is where the Spirit of God's taking us tonight. Because I just suspect there's a lot of people going through difficult times right now. And the devil wants to tell you that that difficult time is because you've done something wrong. The devil wants to tell you that that difficult time means you're not going to make it. The difficult time means there's something wrong with you. It can mean that you've done something wrong, but it's easy to find out. God will show you, and then you repent of it. Don't sit around in it. But in most cases, the difficult time is because God's trying to... God didn't cause it, but God wants to reveal something so he can... Make, so if you're willing, he can make those changes and adjustments in you. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, I've learned to glory in tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance. Oh, I don't like that word. Because perseverance involves, first of all, I, I never have to persevere vacation. I never have to persevere cheesecake. I never have to perse persevere something I'm enjoying. I just want to draw it out. So after the fact that I got to persevere means that it's something I don't like and don't want to be in. And so everything in our flesh wants to get out of it as quickly as possible. But Paul says, I've learned to persevere in it. Because persevere just means you don't give up. Persevere means you, you go through it. Persevere because I've learned that perseverance, endurance, produces something. It produces steadfast character. See, God's much more concerned about developing you on the inside than he is your talent and ability. The Old Testament, the Bible is full of examples of God using people that didn't have ability. 
but allowed God to develop character in them, faith in them, the foundational things. And so, so Paul says, because I've learned that endurance, if I, if I endure this trial, it will produce something in me. It will produce steadfast. It will produce proven character. And proven character, if I continue to grow in that, produces what we're going to talk about tonight, hope. Now, hope in the New Testament is not what we tend to mean by hope. We think we, hope means, you know, well, you know, are, are the Red Sox going to win the, the World Series this year? I hope so. Right now, it doesn't give you a lot of confidence. I hope so. Sorry about that, Don. I hope so. So the word hope in English means everything from maybe to yeah, but in the Greek, it is a confidence, steadfast assurance that what you're hoping for is going to happen. So it's not weak at all. It is a steadfast assurance, and that's what Paul says all of this builds up to, which is beautiful because it fits into right what we're going to talk about tonight. See, the Holy Spirit knew that. So let's pick up in Ephesians. Oh, I know what I was saying while you're getting there. Because the way Paul corrects the churches is not to say, look, this is where you're weak. This is where you're failing. Paul starts by reminding them of who God is and what God's done for them. Reminding them of who they are in Christ. And then the rest of the letter turns, pivots on that. And here it's in chapter 4 where Paul says, now, because that's who you are, act like it. Put on Christ. Don't learn who he is. Put on who you really are. Start acting like who you really are. But to do that, you've either got to find out who you really are or be reminded of who you really are. And sometimes in the midst of the battle, we forget who we are, who God is in us, not just who we are on our own. So that's what Paul's doing here. So I'm not going to go back to the beginning because we'll get... (laughs) bogged down in here. We talked last week, we began the last time about uh, verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So what we saw last time is there, there is an inheritance that we have in Christ. We looked and we talked a little bit about that the, in the Greek, it's a little, the wording's a little unsure. And so some of the commentators, in fact, some of the translations will say that we are his inheritance. And, but most of them say we have an inheritance in him. Either way, it's great. So we have an inheritance in Christ. And we talked about what an inheritance is. It's something you didn't earn that you don't have that's going to be given to you because of someone's death. And so because of Christ's death, he has earned for us an inheritance that is laid up for us. And Paul's prayer is that their eyes would be open to see that that inheritance that they have that's in Christ Jesus. And then he said, you also, after you believe, verse 13, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit's present in you in the spirit realm marks you as belonging to Christ. 
You don't see it on the outside. You can't tell whether you look at somebody whether they're Christian or not, except maybe by the joy on their face, hopefully. But if you can see in the Spirit, you can tell immediately who's a Christian and who's not a Christian by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, from now on, we don't know Christ according to the flesh. We used to be able to see him, see his beard, see the color of his eyes, but we don't do that anymore. We don't relate to him based on his body that we see. We now know him in a different capacity. We know him as a spirit being who lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and, and therefore if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. He's saying the same way we don't know Christ according to the flesh anymore. In the same way, we're not to know each other according to the flesh anymore. I'm not to look at you. I, you know, I recognize who Denny is because I recognize what Denny's face looks like. But I don't evaluate Denny. I don't relate to Denny according to the flesh. You ever notice that, in, well, this church is a great example of this. Even looking out right now. But on any Sunday morning, I look out and we have such a mixture of races and nationalities that governments are trying so hard to legislate for people to get along. And here we worship together openly in unity. Why? Because the Spirit of God has brought us, brought us together. We have something in common, which is not the way we look on the outside. It's not that we all live in the same neighborhood. It's not we're all same the age, the same age. It's not that we all have the same interests. It's not that we all have the same hair color or lack of hair or whatever it is. It's what we all, the one thing we all have in common is the same Spirit that lives in me lives in you, the Spirit of unity. And He's what binds us together to be in unity. And that spirit is how we should recognize one another. If you're born again, you're in Christ. You're my brother. Whether you like me or I like you has nothing to do with it. We're brothers, we're sisters because we're in Christ together. My legs and my arms are one, not because they look alike or function alike, but because they belong to the same body. And they operate together for the purposes that my head determines we need to do. All right. Then we look to the fact that the Holy Spirit is also, verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We talked about that last week. And this is leading into what we're going to look at tonight. The Holy Spirit in you is God's guarantee that He's deposited in you that the future that He's promised you is real. And now we're going to begin to look at what that is tonight and how we walk in that. Down to verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, did not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of your prayers, and this was his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you, now look at these, they're listed here, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that every day. For me, my family, you. Verse 18 that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I just saw something I never saw before. That's neat. He's praying in verse 17 that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18 says, Now that your eyes of your understanding are enlightened, what? Of your knowledge of Him. That you might know what is the hope, what is the hope of His calling. He called you. None of us are in Christ because we convinced him to accept us. 
we're in Christ because he chose us. We saw that in the beginning. And whom he chose, he called. And you responded to that call, which is why you're in Christ. But there's a hope to that calling. And we're going to see tonight, that hope is not fully in this world. In fact, little of that hope is in this world. There is a hope here, but the ultimate hope is not dependent on this world. His prayer is that they might know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. Now let's go back and look at this verse 18. That you might know what is the hope of His calling. What is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? Let me ask you this question because it's the question God's been asking me. What's your hope in? First of all, maybe the starting place is to ask yourself, do I have any hope tonight? Or is your life right now just feel hopeless? Hope is so important. Without hope, there's nothing for your faith to hook on to. Because Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you're not hoping for something, your faith has nothing to look forward, forward to. Your faith has nothing to attach to. I've used this example before, but it's the best one I've ever heard. We have over on that wall, as we do on that wall, and we do in the back, a thermostat. And that thermostat, tell, when I look at that thermostat... I can decide what temperature I want this room to be. And so I go and set the temperature because that thermostat is connected to a heater and an air conditioning unit that's out back. And if what I set that temperature to doesn't match what's in here, it triggers either the heater or the air conditioner to pour out heat or air until the temperature in this room reaches the temperature that I set it at. So when I go to that thermostat and say, I want it to be 68 degrees in here, I'm deciding what I hope for. This is where I want it to be. Walk in here some, sun, some, some, uh, some early some morning in the wintertime, and I guarantee you it's not what I want it to be. And I come in into prayer, and i got to wrap up to come in here. And so we go over to there, or the one that's up there, and we go, and I set it, I want it at 68. It was 58 in here, and I set it to 68. That's what I'm hoping for. And so that then triggers the furnace to bring heat into here until the temperature comes up to where I want the heat to be. The power is in the furnace. But we could have the most powerful furnace in all of Massachusetts out back, but if there's no thermostat there, that power doesn't produce anything, does it? Because somehow i got to tell the furnace what to release the power to perform. And that's what hope does. Because without hope, you're not, at, you're, not, you're not setting your faith. Faith is the power that releases the power of God to bring the temperature up to 68 degrees. But unless you've got a hope for that 68 degrees, all the power in the world, all the faith in the world is not going to bring it up at all because you've not asked for anything. So hope is very important. 
And one of the very subtle the devices that Satan tries to use is to, is to try to steal our hope away. And he does it with circumstances. You look around you and not only is, is things just not working right in your life, but it seems like everybody that he brings across your path, things aren't working right. And they'll tell you that it's not. You get around people that are complaining. This is why the Bible talks so much about not complaining. This is the Bible talks about God got so upset in the Old Testament when they complained. Not only was it disrespectful to God, but it opened up the door for Satan to come in. In fact, it's, it's, it's part of why the curse of the law was released was because they were not thankful and they complained. They complained about the food that God prepared for them. It was free and it was from heaven. But they got tired of the same food. Be careful. That's one of Satan's devices is to get you tired of the same routine over and over again. Because our flesh, although it likes change, it gets uncomfortable with change, but it also doesn't like everything just staying the same. Because we're so often moved, we're so trained to be moved by how we feel, by how things look around us. So when we walk in here and it looks like it's a mess, it's like, ugh. Now, you might get excited, but I come in here day after day and look at the same thing. It's like, is this ever going to happen? Well, it is happening. But if all the time you're looking at the same mess in your life or in your family or in your finances or your job or your house or whatever you're living in, you can just keep looking in that and your mind begins to, what we talked about in renewing the mind, starts connecting the dots and forming a meaning. And starts telling you messages like, it's never going to change. You're always going to be in this situation. And then you get this subtle, God doesn't really care about you. And then you find somebody else that hasn't been standing as long as you have. They haven't been a Christian as long as you have. And things just seem to be working perfectly for them. And you look at them and you look at yourself and say, and you, wanna, you just want to, your flesh just wants to give up. Just wants to give up. That's Satan's device to steal your hope. Because if you can steal your hope, it doesn't matter how much faith you have, it won't do any good. So it's so critical that we are a people of hope. It's one of the three basic things that 1 Corinthians 13 says that, that are eternal. Faith, hope, and love. You don't hear a lot about hope. We did a series on hope several years ago here. And hope is so important. So the question I want to start with tonight is, is do you have hope? I mean, you need to be honest with yourself. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but you need to examine yourself and say, where I am right now, do I have hope? Or am I drifting towards hopelessness? Because if you're drifting towards hopelessness, tonight we're going to find out why and how you can change it. On the other hand, if you're full of hope right now, what's your hope in? Are you building your hope on something that's solid? Are you building your hope on something that Satan doesn't have his hands on? Because one of his, he's the deceiver. He loves to get you to build your hope on something he controls. And about the time you really lean on that for your hope, he starts shaking it. And then when he starts shaking it, because we have not learned, we're not really standing, our hope is kind of what you're standing on. When they built this stage, they made sure it was solid. So no matter who we put up here, you know, whether it's a band or something like that, it doesn't move. Right now, if you stand on that one, it moves a little bit because it wasn't built that well. This one is built so that it doesn't move. So it's a solid foundation. It's a solid thing to put my hope on for standing up in front of you. So what's your hope in? We're going to look tonight with Paul's prayer 
is that God would open the eyes of our understanding so that they would see the hope of his calling for their life. So the first thing to see about it is the hope is based on a calling that God has called you. Because if you don't understand that God called you, you didn't call him, there's always this uncertainty. Well, if God really knew what I was like, if God really under, knew me the way I know myself, he would realize I'm not that faithful. He would realize, you know, I'm, not, I'm weaker than, people may think I'm strong, but down inside I'm weak. You know, God knows more about you than you know about you, and he still called you. He still called you. We saw several weeks ago, he didn't call you because you were so strong. He didn't call the apostle Peter because he was so strong. He didn't call any of them because they were so strong. In fact, my Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. The things that are not to put to shame the things that are. So God chose you because you were weak. God chose you because of what you couldn't do yourself. Because we saw several weeks ago that when this whole age change ends and a new age begins, that God is going to use the church as a testimony to all the angelic beings of what his grace can do, not what you can do. We are trophies of his grace not of our strength or our accomplishments. And so the beginning to understanding the right foundation for hope is to realize that everything starts because he called you, you didn't call him. He knew what he was getting. So we start with a clear track record with him, he knows us. So we don't have to worry about God's going to discover something about us. God knows everything about you and still chose you and calls you in Christ. All right. Having said that, let's go and begin to look at because why hope is so critical. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 talk about you know, who we are in Christ again and that, that because Christ is our high priest, we can draw near with a true heart, a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a consciousness of evil or guilty conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope. Let us, hold, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So our hope is in someone else, is in someone that's faithful, not in our faithfulness. But we must hold fast our confession of our hope. We're not going to have time to get into that right now, but we need to spend some time talking about what we talk about. Talking about the words that come out of our mouth. Our confession. And in this section of Scripture, he talks a lot about our confession of our faith, our confession of our hope in Christ, our confession, words coming out of our mouth, giving honor and glory to God. And when things aren't going well, when you're going in a trial and a test, the very last thing that you feel like saying are, are praising God. Our, you, our flesh just start, wants to rise up and, and throw a pity party. And our mouth wants to send out invitations. And what you'll begin to do is gather around you other people who want to throw a pity party. And you can have this wonderful pity party. But it dishonors God, first of all. 
and it digs a hole for yourself. It digs a hole for yourself and it opens a wide door to give Satan permission to come into your life to steal, kill, and destroy. Why would we do that? Because we don't understand what we're doing. Because it feels good to our flesh. Oh, you don't know how bad I have. On my way over here, I had welling up and I wanted to say something to my wife, something I was just, there was something, it wasn't really self-pity, but it was something that was negative, not about her at all. It was just, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not how I was feeling. And I went to open my mouth and I realized, no. First of all, I'm not going to release that on her. Secondly, why am I going to say that at all? And so I just started within me beginning to praise God. Just begin to praise God. I'm, I memorized the first 10 verses of Psalm 34. A year ago, I felt led to do it. And obviously, so the way, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And the times I've needed to say that the most was when I felt the least doing it. So your confession of hope, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what's going on in anybody else's life. My hope is in God. My God is a deliverer. This is why you need to go back over what God's done in your life out loud. God, you brought me through this. You healed me of this. You delivered me from this. You were there in this mess. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. And there came an answer, supposedly out of the blue, but it was you. I know that. And the God that's brought me this far, the God that's led me for 35 years, is going to be with me tomorrow. I don't know the answer. I don't need to know the answer. I know my God knows the answer. Woo! I feel a lot better now. And not one circumstance has changed. And here's the mistake we make. We base our feelings on the circumstances. And when the circumstances change for the better, oh, glory, hallelujah, God's on his throne and he loves me and I am a man of faith. And then the next day, the circumstances don't look like they're going so well. Oh, God, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's happened to me. Lord God, you are. We're just going to follow the Holy Spirit. Go to James chapter 1. Something's happened since we built this lower platform. <laughs> Verse 5, James 1, 5. If any have lacked wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. Talking about wisdom. Now he's going to talk about asking about anything. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It doesn't say God's mad at him and will hold it back. The instability is what keeps us from receiving. All right, now let's go back to Hebrews and we'll see why we're, inst why we're unstable and why we're double-minded. The word double-minded there actually in Greek means to have two minds about the same thing. So one day it's good, the next day it's bad. And here's where it comes from. Let's go to verse 35, Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, 
which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. After you've done the will of God, you will receive the promise. You have need of endurance. So you've got to wake up and realize, I need endurance. God knows you need endurance. We need to know we need endurance. And the reason so many of us lack endurance is we cave in too easily. And we're coming to a time, whether it's because of persecution, I don't know, or because of where God's calling us, that we're going to have to be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to have to be a people who don't, are not blow with the wind wherever it happens to go, with the circumstances. Stock market's up. Oh, great. Stock market goes down. Your 401k goes up. Great. I've got a great future. The 401k goes down. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. We're coming to a time where God has to be our source. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, let's go on and read down here. For you have, verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Look at this, verse 37. And yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just, those who have been made just, that's us, shall live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul takes no pleasure of him, in him. But we're not of those who draw back to destruction, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. And now chapter 11, he goes on to give examples, practical examples from the Old Testament, essentially, of people that learn to walk by faith. And we'll just quickly go down through some of them. Let's look at um, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness which is according to faith. Let's just break that down. So whatever Noah did here, he did by faith. Verse 1, quickly turn back to verse 1. I skipped that. Because verse 1 he tells you, tell us, gives us what is considered the classic definition of faith. It is, doesn't define what faith is. It tells you what faith does. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And I've explained this to you before. But the way we've learned in our life to develop confidence that something's real is by our natural senses. I know when I came up here today that this stage was, it wasn't a figment of my imagination, that this stage was here because I could see it with my eyes, I could feel it when I stepped on it. And if I got down, I could smell it. And if I wanted to lick it, I could taste it. But my, one or more of my five physical senses confirmed to me that this was really here. So therefore, I have great confidence that there's a stage here. I have great confidence when I go to lean against this pulpit that it's here, otherwise I'd fall over. And the reason I have confidence is my natural senses confirm to me that it's here. So my confidence is in what my senses tell me. 
And for things in this natural realm, that's the way we're supposed to operate. But we're talking about a realm that's not seen. Promises are things that you can't see. God, you can't see him. Heaven, you can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. And you can't touch it. Your natural senses cannot confirm for you that God's real. Just like your natural senses can confirm to you that this pulpit is real. Why? Because this pulpit is of this material realm. God is not of this material realm. He's of that other realm, which is the spirit realm. So your senses are not designed in such a way as to confirm to you the reality of anything that's in the spirit realm. That's called the unseen realm. You with me so far? But in order to have confidence, we've been trained, I can only trust things I can see. It's the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. Evidence is another way of saying proof. That something's real that your senses can't confirm to you. Are you with me? All right, now let's go over to Noah. And here's the problem. We're so ruled by our senses. We're so conscious of our senses that when it comes to the things of God and the promises of God, we bring that same process over to whether we can trust God or not. Uh, Seeing is believing. Well, it's not because 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead and only 120 showed up. And of those, he even rebuked some of his apostles because they weren't believing yet that he was raised from the dead. And they're looking at him. They've seen him walk through walls. And they're still struggling because what determines what you believe is your mind, not your senses. And if what you're seeing doesn't line up with what your mind thinks is possible, we learn this in renewing the mind, it'll block it out, even though it's standing right in front of you. I like it up here. This is good. <laughs> Must be in the rug, Jane. The anointing's in the rug. <laughs> All right. No, it's not. It's in the Word. Where was I? Okay. Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not seen. We break this down. Divinely warned means God told him something. God spoke a word to him and told him to build an ark. And you have to understand, at the time that Noah's told to build an ark, it's never rained. The earth was watered by a mist that came up in the day in the night, in the early morning, and settled down. So Noah's been told by God to build an ark because it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's going to flood the earth. God spoke something to him that didn't make sense or line up with his natural understanding of things. So Noah has a choice. He can either believe what's going to happen just because God said so, Or he can hear what God says and measure it against his experience and what his senses are confirming and decide whether to trust God or not. But notice what was at stake here. Noah being divinely warned. Notice he does this by faith. Being divinely warned of things, look at that, not yet seen. The rest of the people walked by what they saw 
and they didn't believe anything Noah said until the raindrops started coming. Raindrops are falling on my head. <laughs> now they began to believe because they could see what was going to happen. But it was too late. Noah was ahead of them because he took God's word and acted as if what God said was true even though it wasn't confirmed with his natural senses because it was confirmed by another sense, that sense of faith. By faith, Noah obeyed when he was divinely warned. And look what happened. Prepared an ark. He acted on what God said in spite of the fact that his senses couldn't see it. And it ended up in the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness which is according to faith. Noah is an example for us because he took God at his word and believed God's word and acted on God's word. It ended up not only saving him from judgment but all of his household because his household came into the ark that Noah built and that ark didn't take them out of the flood. It took them through the flood. It took them through the trial. It took them through the testing. And because they were in the ark, because they listened to God's word and did what God said when it didn't make sense to their senses, what they did in acting on it provided the very protection going through the storm that kept them safe. And that is a type of Christ, of the salvation we have in Christ by faith. All right. But here's what I want to get. Oh, Lord Jesus, the time. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would receive as inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Again, God spoke. He had God's word and he couldn't see what that meant. All God said is, leave your, where you are, leave your family and go to a place that I'll tell you where it is later when you get there. Imagine going home and telling your wife that. I heard from God. By the way, they worshiped the moon, not Jehovah. And the moon never spoke to them, I assume. So he had to, first of all, explain it's the real God, not the moon. And what did God say? Oh, God spoke to them. What did he say? He says, we're to leave here. Good, we're moving. Oh, that's great. Where are we going? I don't know. <laughs> He's going to tell me when we get there. I mean, just imagine that. To step out, we did that one. Step out, because God said so. And I know the city we're going to, but I didn't know how we were going to live. I didn't know we were going to have an income. I didn't know where, you know, any of that stuff. I didn't have a job. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have anything. And if God hasn't told you to do it, that's stupid. You step out by faith. Now look what happens. And this, oh, this is what I want to get to. We won't finish it tonight. By faith they dwelt in a land of promise. By faith they dwelt in a land of promise. So wherever faith is involved, it has to always start out with what did God say? Because faith that's not based on something God said is foolishness. It's nothing to step out of on unless you have what God said about it first. If Peter stepped out of that boat and Jesus hadn't said come, Peter would have drowned. 
But when God said, come, when Jesus said, come, that changed everything because Peter didn't step on the water. Peter didn't walk on the water. He walked on the word come. He stepped out on the word of God and the word of God, come, was enough to support him in a storm. It was when Peter got his eyes on the circumstances that he began to doubt and then he began to fear and then he began to sink. So Abraham obeyed going out to a place that he would receive as an heir. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, look at this, as in a foreign country. So this is the land God told him to dwell in, but he lived in that country as if he were in a foreign country. If you're in a foreign country, you know you're not home. If you're living in a foreign country for a year or you're an, you're, you're an exchange student in school or you're on a vacation and you're sleep, you know, sleeping in a hotel, or whatever, you know, you know, you're visiting but you're not home. This is not, there's no bed like our bed, my home bed. When we get home and get back in our house, you know, it's nice to get away, but when you get back at home and I get in our bed, it's like, and my pillow, you know, my side of the bed, it's home. I know when I'm not there. Now listen, this is important. Oh. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10. For he waited, we're talking about living by faith. He waited for a city which has foundations. Now, a tent doesn't have foundations, does it? The very fact that you're living in a tent means you know you're not living in your permanent residence because it can easily be moved. In fact, they were nomads. The Midianites and many of them were nomads. They lived in tents. They might live in an area for a while, but when the food changed or whatever, the mood changed, they would get up, pack their tents up, get on their camels, and they'd move somewhere else. They had no stability. There was no permanence to it. And they lived in tents, and that was a daily reminder that although they had a dwelling place, although there was shelter from the wind, shelter from the rain, if there ever was any, shelter from the sun, there was shelter. It was not their permanent home. And they did that by faith because they were looking for something down the road, that not little road, in the future, that was permanent. And that was verse 10. They were waited for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Then he goes on and talks about Sarah. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, they were assured of them. How were they assured of them? Because they can't see the city. There's not a picture on the wall of the, on the side of their tent of this city. They had to see that city with the eye of faith. So they endured the things they endured. They endured the temporary dwelling. They endured the issues of life because what they were doing this for was they knew there was a reward. There was a resting place that they were going to come to that God had built for them. And it was permanent. It was their home. It was not going to change. And it had a foundation that was sure and was solid. And they walked through this life with their eyes on that city and therefore they could deal with whatever came along here because it couldn't take that hope away from them because the hope wasn't in their tent. The hope wasn't in this oasis or this wadi where, there, where it had water because that could dry up. 
Their hope was whatever we go through here, we're going to be faithful to our God. We're going to serve our God and love our God because when we're faithful and endure to the end, there is a hope laid up for us and that is a city, a dwelling place for us that has a permanent foundation. Now look at this. I just want to finish this part because we won't be able to get this whole thing done tonight. They all died in faith not having received the promises. Now they received intermediate promises. Abraham received Isaac. Sarah received Isaac, but they didn't receive in this life that promise. Having seen them from afar, not with these eyes, but with the eye of faith, they were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they come out, they would have had opportunity to return. There is such a warning in that. That if we keep looking at this world we were called out of, if we keep longing for and building our hope in and our security in the things of this life and this world, we will have an opportunity to return to it. That's what the first generation did that came out of Israel. God had promised a place for them, promised it to them. They came to it and they could not enter in. God didn't keep them out. They would not enter in. Why? Because they hadn't learned to trust God in the things that they, they were still trusting in what they saw. They had God's promise. I'll move those, the, 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 the Hittites and all the ites out. I'll take care of them. But they were so moved by what they saw, they didn't believe God's promise, and so they would not enter in because of unbelief. And so they ended up wanting to go back into Egypt. And to preserve them from going back into Egypt, God had to have them wander in the wilderness until the next generation was ready to go in. Let's just read down, and then we'll have to bring this to a close, and we'll finish it next time. Verse 15, and truly if they had called to mind the country from... So that Satan's after you to keep longing for where you came from. Satan's goal is to keep you longing after, missing, seeking after the things of this world, the systems of this world, the comfort of this world, the security of this world. And it doesn't have much comfort and it doesn't have much security anymore. Oh, the good old days when, you know, we didn't have ISIS and we didn't have all this stuff. The good old days, they're gone. And they weren't that good anyway because they weren't a sure foundation. So the times we're in right now are actually good times for Christians because there are fewer things we can put our trust in that aren't God. The things that we used to put our trust in, they're getting shaky or they're being taken away. And if your life is shaky right now, it's because you're standing on the wrong foundation because the foundation we're to stand on is the rock of Jesus Christ and this foundation of his word and nothing can shake that. ISIS can't shake it. Earthquakes can't shake it. Darkness can't shake it. The economy imploding couldn't shake it. Nothing can shake the word of God. It is immovable. It is eternal. And it is the foundation of our life. And our hope is not in this world. It's in what God has prepared for us. And that is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians when he talks about the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the purchased possession. God has purchased an inheritance for you. And that inheritance, yes, there's blessings in this life. Yes, there's wonderful things in this life. But this is nothing compared 
to the inheritance that God has prepared for you and me. And we're living in a time, we're coming through a time when the church has learned the blessings of God and that God will prosper us and take care of us. And that's wonderful. But the danger in that is the church has now moved instead of living where we used to live in the sweet by and by and being no earthly good, we've now moved to the other side. And everything's based on God will do this for me and God will do that for me. And what happens if God doesn't seem to do it for me? Or if it takes longer than I think it ought to take? Now is my relationship with God shaken? Is my hope shaken? Then my hope was in things here. And what's going to happen when you come to that point in time when you're ready to breathe your last breath? Are you going to be shaken then? Very few Christians are prepared to die. But that's the measure of your faith in Christ. What do you do when you come to the face of death? We're going to talk down the road because uh, uh, I've got to end here. A, um, uh, a, a, a title went off in me. That's a title of a series. And that's, I'm going to talk, are you ready? He's coming. Are you ready? The Bible says he's coming for those who are eagerly waiting for his return. Are you eagerly waiting for his return? Do you get up every day and say, it could be today, Richard. Wow, it could be today. Wow. Are you excited about his return or aren't you ready? We need to be willing to look at ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to look at, ourse- look at us because He wants to get us ready. He wants to get us ready. And part of this is looking at what you're hoping. Is your hope in this world? If we are, as Paul says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, if our hope is in this world only, we're of all men to be pitied as Christians. This is not our world. This is not our home. We are sojourners here. We're here on an assignment. We're ambassadors in a foreign country. This is not our home. Don't put your confidence in this foreign country in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, there are many people tonight in this room and, and in this church that aren't here tonight that are going through difficult challenges. We pray, Father, that by the Spirit of God that you would strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man with might that Christ may be able to dwell in us, live his life in us and through us by faith, that that being rooted and grounded in your love for us, we might come to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding so that we might satisfy your desire and be filled with all of your fullness. I pray that for each and every one in this room tonight, Father, that you would fill us with your fullness with your spirit, to overflowing with your joy, your peace, your love, that we would take that out into this world, take you out into this world to be a witness of who you really are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.